Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Welcome to The Point with me, Liu Xin, coming to you from Beijing. China has downgraded its COVID-19 response and a sense of normalcy is returning to people's daily lives. But some countries don't seem to see it that way. The US, the UK, India, the Republic of Korea and Japan have imposed restrictions targeting travelers from China, despite recommendations from medical authorities such as the World Health Organization and the European CDC. What do other countries think of this issue? I sat down with Ma Hui. Chinese ambassador to Cuba, a country which managed to contain COVID-19 despite decades-long embargo imposed by the U.S. Having served both in the U.K. and in Cuba during the three years of the pandemic, how does Ambassador Ma see the gap between realities on the ground and how they are portrayed by some media? Ambassador Ma joined me from Havana, Cuba. Your Excellency, thank you very much for joining us. First of all, on 8th of January, China officially downgrades the control measure of COVID-19 from Class A back to Class B. Uh, In simple terms, that means China officially opens up um, international travels, both inbound and outbound. What is the measure that the Cuban government has taken based on this change? Uh, certainly, January the 8th is a milestone in China's fight against the COVID-19. And the Cuban government actually welcomed the adjustment of China's uh, COVID-19 uh, prevention and control measures. They have always uh, said that they welcomed Chinese visitors. and This will offer a good opportunity for Chinese visitors to come to Cuba to enjoy the so-called Pearl of the Caribbean. And the Cuban government has made it very clear that Cuba will not impose, introduce any additional measures against targeting Chinese travelers. Right now, Cuba doesn't require a a PCR negative test or the vaccine uh, certificate, but uh, they will check randomly on arrival. What is the ground? On what ground is Cuba adopting such a measure? Because we know uh, in the United States, for instance, or Europe, uh, recommendations were given that require inbound tourists from the Chinese mainland to show negativity in terms of uh, COVID infection. Why is Cuba so relaxed and reassured? To Cuba, it's a process. Cuba opened up in July 2021. At that time, they still introduced some uh, control measures. For instance, passengers arriving in Cuba have to show a negative test certificate or to show that they have been vaccinated. Mm -hmm. But uh, since November uh, last year, uh, they have given up on the new measures. So now they don't require that. I think uh, countries' situations differ. And Cuba has always maintained that they are against the politicization of the pandemic. And they adopt uh, measures that to all countries, and they are also against the discrimination on any uh, uh, terrorists from any particular country. Mm-hmm. I don't think uh, it is appropriate for some other countries to impose additional measures because China's position has always been that for all countries, 
the COVID-19 control or prevention policies should be based on science, should be based on facts. And especially, they shouldn't adopt discriminatory measures targeting any particular countries. And further all, they shouldn't politicize or weaponize the pandemic because, after all, the pandemic is a health issue, not a political issue. So I think that's the difference. What is the current status of the situation in Cuba? We understand that Cuba also were hit rather strongly by the different waves of infection, but Cuba managed under embargo by the United States, managed to develop its own vaccines and had a relatively robust Uh, based on a robust public health system, was able to vaccinate its population. Basically, as I last time checked, Cuba has one of the highest per hundred population um, percentage of people boosted with vaccination and with the domestic produced and researched vaccine. So what's the current situation among the Cuban population in terms of uh, COVID-19? The current uh, COVID situation in Cuba is pretty Uh, stable, and the infection rate is very low. Uh, Right now, uh, daily reported cases are between, say, 10 and 30 cases. Of course, not everybody is tested because it's voluntary. And for about five months, there has been no reports of uh, COVID death. Of course, it is also a process. Cuba reported its first case in, I think, March uh, 2020, and then there is a wave of infection towards the end of 2020. And again, in 2021, since the middle of the year, say in June, July, August, and September, there was a new wave because of the prevalence of the Omicron variant. But as you said, the party and the government of Cuba has also always put the life of the people and the health of the people front and center. And the leadership attached a huge importance to the COVID prevention and the treatment issue. As you said, that uh, Cuba, against all odds, developed its own vaccines. And it's the first, the only Latin American country that has developed vaccines. By now, they have already developed five uh, vaccine candidates, and three of them have been put into emergency use. And uh, the uh, inoculation or the uh, vaccination rate among the Cuban population is very high. It's about 90%. I think that contributed to the low infection rate right now. As traditional friends, China and Cuba, of course, have uh, done a lot in many different fronts and definitely in the fight against COVID-19 as well. To your knowledge, what kind of collaboration have been going on between the government and what is still happening? I think there is one common point between China and Cuba, that is both our two countries attach huge importance to the life of the people and the health of the people. Hence, we put a lot of efforts into fighting COVID-19. In Cuba's case, of course, they put emphasis on the prevention, on the treatment of patients, and also on the vaccination among its huge population. The two countries have always supported each other. When the COVID-19 first broke out in China, the Cuban leader called the Chinese leader to express their support and offered their their material support to China despite their own difficulties. And later, when Cuba entered its, let's say, the second wave of uh, infections, say in the July, uh, June 2021, that was the time when I arrived in Cuba and the Chinese government provided 
all out support to Cuba's efforts in fighting the pandemic, including ventilators, oxygen generators, uh, medicines, PPEs. So we overall, we provided about nine batches of support with more than 100 tons of supplies to help Cuba fight the pandemic. Yeah. And also that both two countries are against the politicizing of the uh, pandemic, yeah. the virus, the virus issue. How significant is such collaboration against the backdrop of uh, U.S. embargo against Cuba for decades? And uh, uh, last November, a U.N. resolution was passed by 183 member states of the United Nations calling on the United States to stop its embargo. And yet in the, in the United States and Israel voted against it with uh, uh, Ukraine and Brazil abstaining. Of course, China supports the ending of the embargo. How much of a struggle was it for Cuba to fight against COVID-19 under the embargo? And uh, how did they manage to overcome the challenges? Uh, you know that uh, Cuba is not a big country and their resources are limited. And especially the U.S. embargo or blockade has imposed, imposed a huge sufferings on the people of, uh, on the people of Cuba. Uh, the Cuban people or the Cuban government say that the U.S. embargo Actually, it is another virus that's killing the Cuban people. Even during, during the uh, spikes of the infection, uh, when the cases spikes, the United States didn't lift or relax its uh, restrictions embargo on Cuba. So against all these background difficulties, Cuba relied on itself and also with the support of friendly countries, they fought a hard a brief fight against the pandemic. They even offered help to other countries. I mean, I remember seeing Cuban doctors arriving in Italy in the early stage of the pandemic to help others. Yes, like China, Cuba has also a tradition of uh, sending medical teams to developing countries and even some developed world to help uh, fight a disease and to promote public health. And it's one of the things that... Uh, Cuba is proud of. During the pandemic, it sent, uh, I think, 30 or 40 teams to over 30 or 40 countries. Yeah, how do they manage that under embargo, you know, not only to, to sustain itself, but to help others as well? It's a difficult, brief and uh, heroic efforts. They somehow managed to get some raw materials and rely on their own technology. You know, Cuba is pretty developed in their biotechnology. So they develop their own medicines and vaccines even before the pandemic. I mean, vaccines for other common diseases, mm -hmm. not for the coronavirus. And during this process, they developed their own vaccines. So it's a heroic story for the Cuba people to put up the fight against all these difficulties and mm -hmm. actually be successful in containing the uh, pandemic epidemic in Cuba. Well, if you read the international reports, it seems you don't read these kind of stories that much. I mean, there seems to be a similar narrative um, because of the different social system, I guess, that Cuba is accused, you know, uh, when the situation was the most difficult, Cuba was accused of uh, not doing enough or failing the people. And of course, China has always, the Chinese government has always been accused and criticized for failing since the very first day of the outbreaks detected in China uh, up till this moment. 
Ambassador Ma, you were also in the UK when the outbreak first de- was detected in China and uh, until 2021. What was your observation of the kind of reportage or the politicians' voices, rhetoric when it comes to countries such as China and Cuba? Uh, have they been fair and truthful in their portrayal of what's happening on the ground? I think all those uh, allegations or criticisms against Cuba, and for that matter, also against China, are, are unfounded, and those are, those are untrue. Actually, there is a saying that, damned if you do it, damned if you don't do it. If you recall, we can recall, when China was adopting its dynamic zero COVID policy, the mainstream Western media or some politicians in the Western world are saying that China are curtailing on the rights of the people, those restrictions are not uh, sustainable, and it's a threat for the global economy. But when China lifted those restrictions, now they are saying uh, millions of people will die, and Chinese government is irresponsible, and uh, China, again, is a threat to the global economy. So, of course, that exposed the deep-seated bias against the Chinese people and the Chinese state, actually. And uh, those are really unfounded, and we are strongly opposed to those uh, irresponsible remarks and wrong accusations against China and Cuba. Actually, both China and Cuba devoted a lot of their resources, saving lives, fighting the pandemic, and protecting public health. And in the meantime, we made our own contributions to the global fight against the pandemic. How do you look at the challenges that China is going through at this moment, trying to help the most critical and most um, vulnerable population as to compare to what was happening in, let's say, the UK when you were there as minister in the embassy? Um, do you think China was going a particularly messy period of time or it was something that every country had to face? Uh, what was the similarity? What was the difference? The Chinese government, of course, has always been very responsible by putting uh, the life and the health of the people front and center and devoted all our resources to saving lives and protecting public health. But those noises, those allegations from the Western media, including the British media, are very unjustified and very unfair. Actually, they not only failed dismally, but they lecture others who actually, like China, it has set up a good example of fighting the pandemic and also helping the international community in coping with the pandemic. Like we, China was one of the first actually to say that Chinese vaccines will be made a global public good. And we supplied more than 2.2 billion doses of vaccines to all over the world, including, as you mentioned, sending medical teams to help other countries fight the pandemic. So we believe that solidarity and cooperation is the only way out to fighting the pandemic. All countries should gather together. We are in the same boat as the pandemic. It's a common challenge for all of us, for all the humanity. Thank you very much, Ma Hui, China's ambassador to Cuba, joining me from Havana. All the very best. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Chinese ambassador Ma Hui to Cuba. 
When we come back, I talk to Leslie Marstorp, Vice President and Chief Financial Officer of the New Development Bank, a financial institution that focuses on the BRICS countries. Stay with us. We all enter this world with a universal greeting. <laughs> we then learn to speak. Though our languages, cultures and traditions may differ, we still share one thing in common. We have hope for humanity and the world. General Railway Company Deutsche Bahn, the 26th United Nations Climate. Hear the difference. Join our global network to connect with the world. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point. Things are looking up for the Chinese economy this year following the country's COVID response shift of late. As China's 40-day-long Spring Festival travel rush kicks off, passenger trips during this period are expected to nearly double year-on-year at over 2 billion. Also, in 2021, trade between China and BRICS countries recorded a whopping 40% increase. Will 2023 see an end to the quote-unquote uncharacteristic slow growth of the Chinese economy? How will the BRICS New Development Bank contribute to boosting trade and investment? Earlier, I talked to Leslie Marsdorp, Vice President and Chief Financial Officer of the New Development Bank. He was joining me from Cape Town, South Africa. Mr. Master, thank you very much for joining us. And uh, a little bit about the bank, of course, it was officially opened in 2015. It's headquartered in Shanghai. It was opened by BRICS countries to strengthen cooperation uh, among BRICS and, of course, other emerging economies to supplement efforts um, by other multilateral and regional financial institutions to boost global development. So um, based on the numbers that we have seen and the kind of rush into shopping malls, into scenic spots, into uh, um, tourist destinations, what are the signs you are feeling about the economic activity in the coming quarter, even first half of 2023? I think in general, there's been a uh, a consensus, emerging consensus amongst international financial institutions, also the IMF and the World Bank, that uh, the growth numbers for 2023 will be adjusted upwards. I've just noticed that Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, Nomura, all of these institutions have increased the projected growth for 2023 from around 4.8 to uh, 5.4, some even go as high as 5.6 and so on. So there will be a return to more robust growth in 2023. This will be driven by a number of factors, but the most important lever is for the government to find measures to stimulate business and consumer confidence uh, again. There is a belief that there will be a rebound in consumer uh, confidence because of the pent-up demand from uh, uh, 2022. However, it is important to highlight the road will be bumpy. There will still be a strain on the public healthcare system. There will be increased hospitalization as we work through the, the pandemic. But overall, the direction of travel is very positive because the economic momentum will return from the second quarter and certainly the uh, rest of uh, the year. So in many ways, people see two halves. First half, weaker growth, and second half, much more robust economic vitality returning. 
Let's focus a little bit on the bank, of course, uh, as I mentioned in the beginning of the program, this is to supplement the multilateral, international or other regional uh, financial institutions and in their efforts to boost global development. Uh, it, start, it was started by uh, five BRICS countries. Later on, it took on Bangladesh and the UAE last year. And we have two more members, which are prospective members, Egypt and Uruguay. So looking back, at the last five to six years of operation, what kind of a journey has it been in terms of both the quantity of projects that you, the bank has helped funded and the quality of the projects that you have? Has it been a steady rise that is to the expectations of the founders? The New Development Bank has gone through an exciting uh, journey. In 2015, we were a mere startup, as you have just uh, highlighted, backed up by very strong capitalization from our five BRICS uh, founding member uh, countries. Since then, we have experienced not just growth, but exponential growth. The bank went from zero to a approved project list today of $33 billion, a zero start to $33 billion of approved uh, uh, projects. These projects are spread through out China, Brazil, Russia, India, and uh, South Africa. I think the important point to highlight is that the bank has now reached what I would call more of a steady state, if you like, meaning it will not be exponential growth is what we have seen before, but we are now focused, I think, on three or maybe four key priorities. The first one is to expand the bank. It was always the ambition to create a global institution, not just five BRICS countries, to create a more emerging markets-focused institution. So you're going to see a bigger focus on expanding, bringing in more countries during 2023 and beyond. The second big focus is to deepen our focus on climate uh, and to invest more in sustainability. Improving the lives of people today is really about reducing pollution in, in, in the air. It's about you know getting rid of coal-fired power stations and having more renewable energy. In China alone, for example, we have uh, large uh, solar projects. We have offshore wind projects in the Fujian uh, province. Uh, we are looking at the, the energy efficiency and in, in improving the lives of people through greater focus on uh, climate uh, change. The third area is also focusing more on financing our activities in local currency. In China, for example, we finance half of all of our activities in renminbi. The advantage mm -hmm. of that is that we do not have the exchange rate risk because if you if countries borrow in US dollars, if your currency depreciates, you have to pay back substantially more in uh, interest payments. So what is the point? Yeah, what is the people would ask? What is the point of having a new development bank, uh, a regional group or, or a multilateral financial institution when you have the IMF, when you have Chinese development banks, of course, when you have the AIIB? What kind of relationship, what kind of difference is the new development bank making? I think. Uh... Three things. The first one is that we are much more focused on emerging markets. All of the institutions or many of the institutions you've just mentioned are global in character, with the exception of obviously China Development uh, Bank, which is much more focused on China with some international activities. We're focused on the particular needs of, of emerging markets. Emerging markets constitute the biggest uh, growth engines of the world uh, today, where the biggest, uh, the biggest requirement for additional financial uh, resources. We work in a complementary 
complementary fashion with the World Bank, with the Africa Development Bank, with Asia Development Bank. We are not trying to replace or to compete with. There is a massive demand for new financial resources for development, for new investment in education, in healthcare, and, and so on. So we were started to amplify and to, to bring the, the emerging markets to give them greater focus and uh, priority. What about these countries funding their own projects? I mean, why pulling their money together? And, you know, because just now you talk about, for instance, uh, projects in China would be uh, use, using renminbi or projects that I suspect in Russia would be using the Russian currency and vice versa for the other countries. Uh, why pulling their money together when they are actually, you know, also spending in respective countries using their own currency? One of the main reasons why multilateral development banks play such a critical role in uh, member countries is that they have high credit worthiness. So, for example, the new development bank has a credit rating from Standard & Poor at AA+, and with Fitch at AA flat. We are rated higher, significantly higher than all of our member uh, countries. What that means is that we are able to raise capital from the international capital markets at much cheaper rates and then pass on that benefit to our member countries. So in the process, countries save money, countries are able to, to um, uh, leverage of the technical expertise of the, these institutions. So it is really a, a question about the efficiency of the business model of these institutions is why countries draw on the financing from us. Finally, in one word, if you can, how would you describe uh, the kind of role China has played as the host country of the bank because the headquarters is in China? We have, if you've um, uh, not uh, seen it yet, a um, magnificent uh, headquarters in uh, Pudong, uh, a three-story uh, building, which the host country, which China has uh, provided uh, for us. We're hoping this year and going forward to, uh, uh, if you like, use this building really as a hub for international institutions in uh, China. This uh, um, building, the, the headquarters of the bank, is one of the greenest buildings in all of China. It has platinum environmental um, sort of standards in terms of the energy efficiency and all the, the sort of latest technologies that have been introduced. So um, we have as an international institution, we are one of the only ones headquartered in uh, 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 Shanghai. We have only had the best of experiences uh, living there. Thank you very much, Leslie Marstop, Vice President and Chief Financial Officer of the New Development Bank, joining me from Cape Town, South Africa. Leslie Master, Vice President and Chief Financial Officer of the New Development Bank. With that, we come to the end of this edition of The Point with Nidu Shin. We've got the point.